Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, we were lucky enough to host an online event in conversation with Zadie Smith. Smith's new book, The Fraud, is a dazzling novel about truth and fiction, Jamaica and Britain, fraudulence and authenticity in the mystery of other people. Set in late 19th century London, Smith uses the real-world Tickborne trial as a storytelling spine. At the time, this trial captivated England. At its core, it was a trial about identity. So Roger Tickborne, long believed dead, arrives back in England to claim his title. The only witness called is Andrew Bogle, a former enslaved man from Jamaica. Reacting to the story, Mrs. Eliza Tushet, the housekeeper and cousin of once successful novelist William Ainsworth. Zadie Smith was joined in conversation by Esther Anatolites, editor of Mianjin. To introduce both of our esteemed guests, here is Reading's programming manager, Christine Gordon. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Gordon and I'm here to welcome Esther and Zadie to the Zoom platform. Esther, you will know her because she is the editor of MeEngine, one of the most widely popular journals that happen here in Australia. It's a privilege to have her. She's also a leading advocate for the arts and culture in our great country. She will be talking tonight, truly, with the one and only Zadie Smith. Ah! <gasps> And the crowd goes crazy. Everybody's cheering. Everybody, everybody, to standing ovation. Sit down, everyone. Sit down. We're about to start. Over to you, Esther. It's always hard to convey the sense of how thrilled we all are to be together when we are online. But big thank you to Christine. Everyone, this evening, I'm joining you from the land of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people here in Canberra, also known as Canberra, the nation's capital, the sovereign land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people had never been ceded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I honour their continuing custodianship of this beautiful, beautiful country and thank them for that custodianship. I pay deep respects to their, their continuing culture this evening, we are here to have a great conversation with Sadie Smith. Now, I'm in Canberra. Sadie is in London, where it is extremely early. Before we say a big hello to Sadie, we're here uh, with thanks to the good people at Readings to have a great conversation about Sadie Smith's new novel, The Fraud. She is the multi-award winning author of novels White Teeth, The Autograph Man on Beauty and W, Swing Time, plays like The Wife of Wilsdon, works of short fiction and collections like Martha and Hanwell, Grand Union Stories. She is a rigorous thinker of the post-colonial and someone whose work and whose thinking I've admired for a long time. So, Sadie, how fantastic to have you here with us this evening or this morning. This morning. Thank you, Esther. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Hey. Now, this morning, evening, morning, we're going to talk about fact and fiction. We're going to talk about culture and class, freedom and control, and the historical novel. So let's start there. Sadie, you've written and spoken about having written a historical novel only reluctantly, but also about having felt that reluctance for for quite some time. Could it be instead that you'd long been drawn to writing a historical novel but had really been kind of resisting that? And, and in thinking about that, tell us just for the Australian reader, 
what makes the historical novel such a canonical form in the UK that that it needs, it sort of bears having that relationship to it, whether you will or whether you won't? I I think my experience just watching the careers of English writers, like Hilary Mantel is a great example. She wrote about maybe 11 novels before she wrote the historical novels and and they're um, brilliant. Every single one of them is a, is like a mini masterpiece and, and they were largely ignored in England for years and years, even though she's the same generation as, I don't know, McEwen or Rushdie or Barnes or she had this very small readership and people who were kind of obsessed with her like me, but not a mass readership. And when she wrote this historical novels, you know, it transformed I remember thinking, you know, well, that's a shame that you have to write about Henry VIII to, to alert <laughs> the English public to a great woman writer like Hillary. But but that was in fact too cynical. Hillary absolutely wanted to write those novels, and and they are. I didn't read them until I finished my own. And again, they're not quite historical novels. They're not written in, in any kind of Elizabethan prose. They're very sharp-minded interventions, interrogations of the past. She worked like a historian, so I was. You know, always impressed by Hillary, but I think she too knew that that tendency in the English to be sentimental about the past and to treat it as a cosy era. And in fact, of course, those historical mm-hmm. novels that she wrote are in no way cosy. They're really quite brutal. And you can see a lot of British politics in the 90s, particularly 80s and 90s in those novels, when our politics got taken over by advisors, you know, professional political advisors. I think she was very interested in that. I don't know. I, I had doubts because I, I like to think of myself as a contemporary writer and I still think of this as a contemporary novel. But yeah, there is, I suppose there is a tradition in England of the historical novel being the respectable form. Yeah. Respectable because of a sense of history being revered? Do you think it's respectable because there's a sense of a nostalgia for perhaps the less open kind of morals and class structures of a different time? What is it that makes the historical novel something that so many British writers feel they they, they must tackle? Well, I think the, the great historical novels that have happened are, are about British writers interrogating exactly that kind of cosiness because the nostalgia for the Victorian period, it can be, you know, politically conservative and it's an idea of petticoats and um, <laughs> polite behaviour. But but what I was trying to reveal is that the Victorian period is a time of radical change, mass working class activism. So, in fact, I am also nostalgic for the Victorian period, but for different reasons. And it's that period of of great change that comes through so strongly in in this novel. I mean, central to the novel is this well-documented fraud, but it's this is so much that kind of spins around this fraud that that, that you present. It's kind of the the, the truth and lies that the theatre of it all, that fraud is is kind of, you know, this sort of strong axis in the in the centre around which so many people's lives move and twine. And so given readers will have come across probably a lot about this fraud in, in its sort of factual senses. What are you asking readers to look out for as the story unfolds? Because in a sense, the fraud is, it's an engine for your characters and their revelations. Well, you know, I'm not in the practice of telling my readers what to look out for, <laughs> because I'm hoping for adult readers who make their way through books with their own minds. But what I was thinking about, I guess, was you know, populism in general, like it the past eight years, you know, I imagine a lot of people on this call are outraged and scandalised by right-wing populism, but this case is about left-wing populism, which interested me. Because the thing about populism on either side is that no matter how much it horrifies us, it often works. So I was interested in this case because it has a lot of the tendencies of right-wing populism. It's deeply irrational. 
it attracts a large and kind of rabid crowd, but its politics are entirely opposite. That part interests me, the way that irrational politics can sometimes have uses. And that's something that it's sometimes hard for rational actors to imagine. Like the thing that, that it reminded me of most, the Tichborne trial, was I guess the OJ case. Like I can remember mm. when I first came to America, talking to black American friends and having these huge arguments because I, I was British and I couldn't understand why anyone would support the murderer of a woman. You know, I couldn't understand it. And watching the, the TV screens of, you know, yeah. white people looking at the hands and black people cheering, to a black British person, it was completely, well, for, for me, it was completely incomprehensible. So I had a lot of stand-up mm. rounds and it, it took me a while to understand uh, what I was being told is that, I mean, I understood the American court system was unjust and racist, but the point was that this case, as absurd as it was, was a kind of tool for revealing that. And OJ presented himself as this paradoxical figure, you know, a white black man, black man, but with the advantages of a white man in America because rich. And in the Tichborne case, it's, it's very similar, right? You've got a court which is deeply corrupt, manned purely by aristocrats and by lawyers whose training is, to say the very least, eccentric and also aristocratic. <laughs> Poor people in these courts had no chance. I mean, it was very common for a boy to steal a sheep and be sent to Australia or to steal two sheep and be hung. So these courts were profoundly unjust. So the Tichborne case, which takes a, an obvious fraud, a man who is not who he says he is, who is lying, but is working class. I think the great mass of working class people in England felt like we want one of our own to win for once. And that is the same spirit in the OJ case. And I think it's very hard to comprehend if you think of politics as a rational place. But if you think of it as a place of desire and irrationality, it makes a certain kind of sense. And it did, the Tichborne case, for all its absurdity, did do something to the English law. In the second case, because there were two, a criminal trial and a civil trial, in the criminal trial, for the first time, as far as I know, in English legal history, the jury was completely made up of working class people. The English court had to bend suddenly in a way that it never had before. So it's one of the examples how an untruth, when it goes through an unjust system, can change an unjust system. And this is something that I know that a lot of Australian readers will go into the novel looking out for. There is a case in Australia which uh, was has been quite infamous the last few years, a highly decorated soldier, Ben Robert Smith, who journalists, after much investigation, found to have committed some very, very serious war crimes. When this was reported, he sued those media outlets for defamation. And the veracity of, of the war crimes was proven to a civil right. standard through that defamation case. It will now go to other kinds of courts. But right. it's precisely, as you say, Zadie, that, that realisation of a court being set up apparently to rationally work through something and then seeing the irrationality there and then how right. that it reflects back on characters, people in, in the stories that, that, that you tell who have some control over their lives or very little control right. over their lives. I mean, obviously, everybody would prefer just court systems and rational cases. But <laughs> in the absence of just court systems, sometimes these things happen. And the size mm. of the Tichborne case and the theatre of it, like, I think even while I was writing it, it only occurred to me afterwards that given that this court is in the centre of English power, it was in Parliament the Queen's Court, and that the three participants are a working class white man, a previously enslaved Jamaican, 
And the lawyer himself was a completely wild Irishman who was struck off at the end of the of the case because he behaved so badly. But when you look at those three participants, what's happening every day for two years in court is a kind of theatrical presentation of the three things that the English didn't want to think about, Jamaica, Ireland, and the condition of the working classes in their own country. So that perhaps psychologically explains why the case was so huge, because it was a kind of way of putting on stage a lot of anxieties and problems of the moment in an entertaining form as well. Like that's the other thing about populism is that it's fun, right? It's fun to watch. It's much more interesting than everyday, boring, legislative, liberal politics, which are very dull to watch. This is much more thrilling, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on. And it's got structure and it's got contest and, yeah, absolutely, the the theatre of it. Personal drama, stories. This is what (laughs) engages people. And it functions like fiction a lot. You know, it's lying to tell the truth. That attracted me about it too, that they were presenting themselves as characters, they were telling stories. And some of those stories, like in the case of Andrew Bogle, the previously enslaved man, these stories were incredibly compelling. And I'm not the first person to notice that. Like, there's a beautiful story by Borges about this case. It's only two and a half pages long, where he calls Bogle a genius. You know, he says this man was a genius. Anyone who can tell a story like that for two years on stage and make it as entertaining and moving and smart as he made it is a kind of unsung narrative genius. And I completely agree with him. And thinking about that idea was one of the motivations for writing the book. And this really comes through and people telling stories to each other, the stories that are constitutive. There are so many characters to discuss here, but let's focus on on Eliza for a little moment. So there's so much wisdom in her, so much wit. So Zadie, please share your delight with us in crafting this woman from, from fact and into some fiction, because it must have been quite delicious, especially her sexuality. I mean, I I think up to this point in my life, I'm 47 now, the most pleasure that I can have in life. (laughs) That's that's the best way I can put writing Elijah. I was reading Virginia Woolf recently and she says something similar. I don't know what she's just finished. Orlando, I think. She says, that's the most pleasure I can have in life, what that just happened. And that's how I felt. It was it was a delight to write that character. And, you know, it's it's a shame to have to stop writing her, to be honest. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I think that the centrally interesting thing about her to me is that she's a Catholic, which is such an interesting mind state, partly because, uh, like fiction, the Catholic creed is able to to believe two things at the same time. I mean, the classic example is the host. The bread is both the body of Christ and also bread. The wine is the blood of Christ and also wine. And that mindset, which I suppose in a secular world seems whatever, ridiculous, or is to be dismissed, to me is a very interesting space to be in, to be able to hold two thoughts in in your mind at the same time and and allow them both to exist. And that's Mm. the kind of mind that she has and she moves through the world that way. Some of it gives her this incredibly expansive view of reality. Other times it leads her into hypocrisy and fraud. We're all led into hypocrisy and fraud in different routes, but, but she at least is always engaged, always thinking, and very free in her mind. I guess that was the other thing I was interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, our view of the Victorian period is is of unfreedom. And it's also quite banal and flat, like <laughs> going through America recently. <laughs> I was so, so struck by like people in the audience saying things to me like, but surely, you know, nobody had sex like that in the Victorian period, as if sex was invented in 2008. 
such an extraordinary <laughs> idea that that we have the most interesting sex that's ever existed. It's a kind of innocent idea. It's quite moving in a way it's that funny, you can genuinely yeah. believe that for 2,000 years people had no idea how to have sex apart from in missionary position in the dark. That idea, which is movingly childish, struck me. But of course, what changes in the 60s is people have a language for it. They start talking about it. But the actions themselves are are as long as life itself. You know, there were only a certain amount of orifices. And I imagine people worked out how to use them a long, long time ago. So trying to reanimate the sense of the Victorians as people who, of course, have all the same desires as us, have all the same complicated relations, have all the same mysterious marriages and polyamorous relationships and absent children or everything we have, but perhaps not the same language for it. That was what I was trying to get at, the connection between then and now. And all of that comes through, as I say, quite deliciously. But let's hear you read a little passage oh, first yeah. and I have more questions about Eliza because the language in this work, I mean, the, the, the structure of it, you're going to adore everyone as you start to read, but the language is also just so arresting at moments. But let's hear from Zadie and then some more questions from me. So this section is in the middle of the book. It's the moment where Eliza, who's this Scottish housekeeper, who's been attending the trial for almost a year, finally meets two people involved in it, Andrew Bogle, who is this formerly enslaved man from Jamaica, and his son, Henry, who's a young man of mixed race, because Andrew married two different white women while living in England. They meet just outside of the court. This is the bit. Oh, here we go. She had imagined this encounter, pictured herself accosting father and son just like this outside the court, and then the walk down Great George Street to a chop house, the corner table by the window, even what she would say as the arthritic Mr. Bogle slowly took his seat. But nowhere in these mental projections had she imagined being asked to explain herself. No more than she expected the figures in her dreams to stop what they were doing and ask their sleeping author why they flew in a hot air balloon or visited China or dined with the Queen. And it's surely not a difficult question, Mrs. Touché. Mrs. Touché, my father has had a very long and trying day. I consider it my duty to protect him from any further exertions. I'll ask again, what is it that you want with my father? He did not say my father. Had no hint of that Caribbean lilt she had expected and heard at various lecterns over the years, and for a moment, this threw her. And nor was this young master bogle like those musical voices of memory pleading his case. On the contrary, it was Eliza who now found herself pleading. Well, I only wish to speak with him, but perhaps he might answer for himself, Mr. Bogle. The elder Bogle put out a steady hand to still his excitable son. Madam, I have spoken. I have spoken and I have not been believed. I think I have now finished speaking. So Roger is ruined. And if he is ruined, how much more ruined am I? No. Now I will go home. Come, Henry. But Mr. Bogle, I believe you. And saying it aloud, she realised it was true. He looked at her narrowly. He had been holding his top hat in his hands. Now he sighed and put it back on his head. Well, it is of no consequence now. Oh, on the contrary, Mr. Bogle, there is to be a criminal case in which no doubt your testimony will prove consequential particularly given that the public interest in your situation is at present so lively. 
Henry frowned. You are a journalist, then? I, well, no, I am a writer, improvised Mrs. Touche, colour flooding her cheeks. She had hoped not to stumble into a direct lie. But something about the shrewd, dissecting gaze of the sun pushed her onwards. That is to see, I write occasional pieces for the periodical Bentleys. And I feel certain our readers would be very curious to hear more of your father's story. I see. And what would it pay? Pay? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Mrs. Touche, with all due respect, if my father has something that is of value to you, then it is only fair that he should be paid for his trouble. We've been told that these London papers sell twice as fast on the days when my father's testimony appears, and yet so far we've seen no advantage from it whatsoever. Mrs. Touche struggled to hide her disappointment at this open display of venality. She clutched her bag a little tighter in her hands. Mr. Bogle, I'm afraid I cannot pay for interviews. As far as I'm aware, it's not common practice. A private look now passed between the Bogles that she did her best to read. Offence? Hunger? Pride? But if there is some other way in which I might be of assistance, perhaps, well, I wonder whether you and your father might not join me for a good hot meal. You must be in need of, in need of sustenance after such a long and trying day. Had she gone too far, she could see with what defensive care the son was dressed, kept his gloved fingers tucked into his palm to hide the holes, wore a stopped brass pocket watch in his threadbare waistcoat. His shoes were of the kind you found in the pawn shops, serially resold and in three different shades of brown leather. Perhaps he was 16? The two of them stepped back from her for a moment and consulted, and it seemed Henry's counsel would win out. But then the father put a hand to his son's wrist once more and stepped forward. I will come. My son will walk with us as far as Regent Street. He must go to Sir Roger. He will be needed there. But I will come with you and eat. That's it. Thanks. Sadie, thank you. First of all, it's always a treat to hear an author read. And now I will forever, as I reread, be hearing it in your voice. Good. <laughs> As I was saying at the start of our conversation, the fraud sort of sits in the middle like this central axis and then it it confuses and disorients us at times. Are we in the future? Are we in the past? The characters come into our worlds. Eliza is making her way. She's practical and she's determined. She's someone who, given her lot in life, as I was saying, early things tend to happen to her. But then there's a moment where she discovers that her income in life is about to double. There's this extraordinary change. And then there's another moment where she's in a position to make a monumental difference in the lives of two women that she doesn't even know. Can you tell us a bit about the agency that you were really careful to craft into this character? It's a series of different things. Like one is the first thing you mentioned was time, like the disorienting. There's two reasons for it. First of all, there's a question of chronological time. Like in, in a lot of the media that we consume, our TV shows, a lot of our novels, there's this A to Z chronology, quite basic. And when we read something which doesn't do that, I think we find it shocking or avant-garde or we're confused. But that's not because the A to Z chronology is, is more like real life. It's just a convention. It's a convention that we're so used to that it's very strange sometimes to be taken out of it. 
But I don't think people experience their lives like half an hour sitcoms. I don't believe it. I don't believe <laughs> that their lives are beginning, middle and end. I think people are, respond deeply to trauma, that their memories are ordered in the way that they feel things and that it's the job of writers and artists to try and get closer to experience, not closer to a conventional format, not mm -hmm. the one that you see online every day or in the TV show or in the cinema, but to give back to people their real lives and the, the way they actually experience life. That chronology, like I was in conversation with a great Nigerian-British writer called Chris Abani in America recently, and he said something which really moved me that in Yoruba culture, for example, that chronology doesn't really exist. And there is a different sense of the way time moves. And he flattered me by saying, maybe as a, a very tiny part of that diaspora, I have some instincts in that direction too. You know, my novels are structured like dances. I know, like music, they swing back and forth. That's natural to me. It's not some kind of thing I'm trying to do to annoy you. <laughs> I just really <laughs> don't experience time in that way. And I think a lot of people don't actually. And there's all kinds of philosophical arguments about the way time is formed. You know, time is quite colonial. It starts at Greenwich Mean Time. It's imposed on the whole world so that trade can move. That's not what time is, actually. That's just capital time. It's time so that money can move through different zones. So I think fiction is one of the few places where you can reclaim time and make it into a form that is actually feels real to you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that reading is a conversation and it's out of respect for readers that I try and craft things that are worthy of a human being. 35 second TikTok video is fun, but it's not really worthy of a human being. Human beings have incredible capacities to order things and understand things and move things around. So I think there needs to be somewhere in the culture where art is being made that says, you know, you're a human being, you have, you can read. Like I, I'm saying it to myself as well, because I forget how to read. I'm online looking at articles and only reading the fifth word in each sentence and just trying to get a basic sense. So I forget how to read. So when I'm writing, I'm trying to remind myself, like we used to be able to read the idea that a novel like this is complicated or experimental. It's like a joke when you consider what was published in 1908, 1912, like this is mm. not a complicated book. So something's changed in us, not in the literature. So I'm trying to remind myself, oh yeah, I can read, I can work out that just because something is not happening in exact chronological order, I can still figure it out. I'm an adult. <laughs> These are things I'm telling myself and hopefully also my readers as I'm working. Eliza's agency, watching some of the discourse over the past eight years, I was really interested in the idea of bad actors. like. When you look at mass systems of oppression or injustice, I think one of the temptations is to say, oh, evil people do that. So evil people create mm. the Holocaust. Only evil people. And evil people created the system of slavery. Because one of the ways that gets you off the hook is that as a reasonable person on this Zoom, you say to yourself, well, but I'm not evil. So that doesn't implicate me. These, these are extreme events involving extreme people. And what I think when I was reading about plantation history and also in fact the history of the holocaust i read about both because i was interested in extremity and also a lot about the environmental situation right now these are all extreme situations what becomes clear is that you absolutely need a hardcore of sociopaths they have to exist they have to exist in concentration camps on plantations and in anti-environmental lobbies you definitely need those people otherwise the whole show doesn't get started but that's not all you need you need a large group of people who, like in the environmental case, are just trying to live their lives, right? I'm sure most of you went on holiday this year 
or bought a plastic water bottle last month. Or So that kind of complicity is very broad. And it's always very broad, whether it's in Nazi Germany or in England during the plantation system. So I think it's a childish mentality, which is like, well, which is what I'm not interested in evaluating, which it's obvious to anyone that the sociopath on the plantation is not the same as the lady putting sugar in her tea in London. But it, it's not to get anyone off the hook. It's, it's history. It's trying to understand how many people were involved for this kind of system to survive. And also how many people are involved to stop this system? What does it take? So Eliza is a person who is an abolitionist. She is wise in some areas, blind in others. She helps sometimes, she doesn't help in others. She has desires that are not useful, like she wants to be best friends with Andrew Bogle. Andrew Bogle does not want to be best friends with her. He's not interested in being best friends with her. He is interested in making pragmatic alliances in order to improve his situation. He is interested in the idea that, you know, the people in Manchester, the working poor people of Manchester refused the delivery of cotton from America because they made the analogy that though we are not slaves, we are both living under the system of capital. Those kind of pragmatic situations happen over and over again in the fraud and happened over and over in the 19th century. Is Eliza the same as Frederick Douglass? No. <laughs> she is not on the same moral plane as Frederick Douglass. Did she do nothing? No, she did something. So this is a novel about lots of people doing many different things on an arc of ethical behavior, which it's not my job to judge. The reader can judge the difference between Frederick Douglass and Eliza or Eliza and Andrew or the revolting slaves themselves and the working people of England. But my point is, if you look at historical periods, all of these people are involved both on the side of complicity and the side of change. And this, I think, is is what's going to draw a reader in and make us want to read and reread these inter intertwined lives, conflicts of culture and class, the long arcs in those short chapters. You got me thinking so much now about the non chronological, emotional, and trauma based history of our lives and the way that certain moments can suddenly, immediately coexist and be instantly present and there are so many moments like that. I want to ask you then about language as a, as a last question because there's some masterful use of language in the fraud that the structure again is is going to be really engaging and makes people want to go back, go forward. But then there are these linguistic moments that just kind of tug at our sensibilities and sort of immerse us really deeply in the world that you're crafting. And you stop for a moment within a short chapter, whether it's, you know, right at the beginning, this notion that the weight of literature can create a hole in the floor, this sense that freedom can find a gap in Eliza's thoughts and then lurch up to greet her. Eliza feeling freshly murderous, feeling comic or comically monstrous or not wanting to appear in any more novels. As, as she says, there's so much of this use of language, Zadie, that there are so many rhythms in this book. There are the rhythms of your chapter structure. There are the rhythms of the, t- the temporal structure. But then there's the rhythm that these revelatory uses of, of, of language just bring up so much to us. So I wanted to ask you as a writer, what delights you most when you're when you're playing with language, when you're crafting words, because it is such a delight to read. The book begins with somebody's ceiling falling in because there's so many books there. But, <laughs> but the funny the funny thing about it is it's not a metaphor. That happened to William Ainsworth in real life. So part of this is the freedom of the truth. Almost everything that happens in a novel is the truth. So I didn't have to do that part. The plot was out of my hands, which is a beautiful thing to happen to a writer. 
And then language-wise, rhythm is my jam. You know, I, I am a diaspora writer to that point of view, and I do make that connection. When I think about the writing of the diaspora all over Africa and wherever Africans went, there is that sense of sound and rhythm in the, mm. in the prose. And to mm. me, it's much more, that is a cliche of perhaps, but I experience it as a truth anyway, and I experience it as a truth about my writing. And the things which don't interest me in writing are, are more easy to list. Like I'm not very interested in similes, metaphors, decorative language, italics, exaggerations, solemnness, fake poetry, bombastic. <laughs> like Good writing I for me is really about getting rid of all the things that you hate. And once I've got rid of all of that, I'm left with what matters to me, which in the end is just clarity, saying exactly what I mean to say in the fewest words possible. <laughs> And that was the principle of this novel. I, th I think you can count the metaphors and similes on one hand. I don't think there are any, really. This, was, this is really about the truth. It's a novel about the truth. That kind of poetic, fakely literary or poetic language doesn't interest me. And it certainly doesn't interest Eliza, who is very focused on practical matters. So it needed a language that was practical and open. And then I suppose I have an added principle to myself, which... It's harder in this book than any other is that I come from, you know, uneducated, unlettered people. So it really matters to me that a novel is open enough to allow anyone in, pretty much. So language which is deliberately obfuscatory or it can't work for me because I have the dream. And it may, I know with this book it's hard because so much of it does depend on whether I like it or not on a knowledge of literary history or Victorian history or so in this book, it was slightly unavoidable, but at least I was trying to make the language as open as possible, you know, and to try not to put doors in front of people. And that's always important to me. It's what will stop me. I'll never be an avant-garde artist. Sometimes I used to envy the people who are in that little corner, but I know that talking to people is important to me and that I really believe from like, the vague philosophical training I've had that it is possible to say the most complicated things in clear language. It doesn't have to be elaborate. So that's always the kind of test for me. Like, I guess there are a lot of ideas in this book, but the thing which matters are, are the characters, the people, their relations with each other. And I think they're accessible to, to most people. Zadie, you've just warmed my heart because the way you just described the politics and culture of your family is also the reflection of, of my own family, but also the way that you've just described the politics of conveying a truth with clarity and accessibility is very much the Australian cultural moment right now for many, many right. reasons. The warmest, warmest of thanks to the extraordinary Zadie Smith. Thank you so, so thanks, much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. The Fraud and all of Zadie Smith's other books are available from all reading stores and from our website. We'll we also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callian. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.